several years ago, when my mother was still alive and I was a professor, I was teaching a database systems class at the University of Colorado at Boulder. It was a graduate level class, and one day a woman from that class came to my office. Now I could tell that she was very angry about something the moment I looked up at her. She sat down across my desk. She happened to be a very well-off student from France. She dressed in a very elegant way that reminded me of my French mother. She also drove a brand new Mercedes that her parents had bought for her and it had delivered to the house that they had rented for her in a very nice part of Boulder. She had a kind of snooty attitude, something that actually was not like my mother. I'm changing some of the details of this story to protect her privacy. I asked her what I could do for her. She then proceeded in a very, very loud voice to tell me that I had given her a C on an exam because she's French. She said that her exam should have gotten an A and that if I weren't such a xenophobe, I would have given her the grade she deserved. She said that she had already filed a formal complaint against me. She then went on and on about how she could see my hatred for French people in my eyes, and she knew from the beginning of the semester that I had it in for her because she was French. I waited for her to take a little break from her tirade, and then instead of saying anything at all to her, I picked up my phone and I called my mother. Now, my mother was, of course, French-speaking. Her parents were French, and she grew up speaking French in school and at home. She identified heavily as being French. I spoke French as a small child, but have since forgotten most of it. Interestingly, though, in times of particular stress, if I really need my French, it tends to come back to me. When my mother answered the phone, I said hello to her in French, and I asked her how she was doing. My mother said it was very nice that I was again practicing my French. I told her that I had a selfish reason for speaking French to her, that there was someone in my office that I would like her to talk to. Of course, while I was talking to my mother on the phone, the student, whom we will call Sophie, was sitting there with wide eyes. I told my mother that I had given a graduate student from France a C on an exam and that she was sitting in my office very angry at me. I said that Sophie was under the impression that I had given her a C because I hate French people. I then gave the phone to Sophie and I could hear my mother's loud voice being directed into Sophie's right ear. I'll get back to this. I'd like to look at the book of James and in particular the opening of the book where the author introduces himself and offers a greeting to his readers. This is how it reads. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. 
The author says that his name is James. Over the many centuries since this was written, people have argued about the identity of this James. Is it James, the brother of Jesus? We have waxed and waned on whether we think this is true, and there is a renewed belief now that indeed Jesus' kid brother wrote this letter. I'll get back to this in a moment, but first note a couple of things. The letter is representative of a flourishing early Jewish Christian church in the very general ballpark of 50 to 150 A.D., it appeared that there might be a major branch of the Jewish faith that would accept Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. This more or less fizzled out. Also note that James calls himself a, quote, slave of God. This was a common phrase for early Christians to use when identifying themselves. Now, who is this James? First, the names James and Jacob are related in Hebrew, and this was a very common name at the time. The evangelist Paul refers to James, the brother of Jesus, as an apostle, and so adds some credence to the idea that the letter was written by Jesus' brother. It's also recorded in Acts 15 that James was active in the Jerusalem council, and so Jesus' brother was active in the early church. We know that much. And since the letter is so strongly focused on non-Gentile believers, it would seem that the letter was written by a contemporary of Jesus, someone who lived before the explosion of the Gentile church. But since the letter was written in a very polished Greek, if Jesus' brother did indeed write this, he would have had to get some help from a much more literate writer. It's highly unlikely that the son of a small village builder, Joseph, would have had the command of Greek necessary to write this document. Perhaps the biggest oddity, if this was truly written by the brother of our Lord, is that there are two, and only two, direct references to Jesus Christ in the entire book and one of them is in the greeting. In truth, we will almost certainly never know if the younger brother of the Son of God wrote the book of James. The first truly contentful part of the letter written by James is verse 2. Here it is. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, I did not think of this verse when the wealthy young woman from Paris was accusing me in a voice that I am sure was heard many doors down the hall of being a bigot who hated French people. Everyone in our society is very sensitized to any kind of bigotry. If I had thought of this verse, maybe I would have been more relaxed, though, as my mother lectured this woman in French. Maybe I would have remembered that it's part of Christian theology, part of who we are as believers, that we do not have to be rich or healthy or to have things go our way in order to have joy. This is because our biggest source of joy comes from God. Simply having faith, knowing that God is with us every step of the way in life, 
reassures us and gives us confidence that everything will be fine, that we will be okay. My mother, whose name was Annette Claire Dubois, spoke to this woman in a very loud voice. It might be more precise to say that she was yelling at Sophie in French. I could hear my mother say that she, my mother, was French herself. I could hear her say that her son did not hate his mother. My mother also wanted to know how the hell Sophie came up with this bizarre form of racism. Hating French people? How about English people, she said, or folks from Arizona? Does your professor hate those people as well, my mother wanted to know? I'll get back to this. Looking at the book of James again, if you're wondering just what sorts of troubles James is referring to, we can't be sure. But most likely, he's just speaking in general terms and is talking of the normal trials that face any person in life, including those that impact Christians, such as being shunned because of their beliefs, or being put down by others because Christians at the time tended to be poor and to not have any political clout. Several verses later in the book of James, it says this, Believers who are poor have something to boast about, for God has honored them, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like a little flower in the field, the hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. Indeed, Sophie was rich. But the real point here is that James is saying that there are two kinds of poverty. One involves money and it is radically less important than the other, the one that involves faith. You are far wealthier all in all if you believe, if you live your life in emulation of Jesus' life, than if you happen to have a lot of money. What's intriguing is that this implies that society, economics, the stock market, all those things in life that we cannot control have nothing to do with true wealth. All of us are entirely in control of how rich we are. I have always loved the end of what we just heard. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all of their achievements. It doesn't matter at all how much money you have, how much the world has honored you, how much you're envied. At least it doesn't matter the instant you die. In fact, while many people do not outlive their money and manage to pass on riches to their children, most wealthy people do outlive the joy that money gives them. I'd like to go back to my mother and Sophie. My mother spoke to Sophie somewhat longer than I might have expected, but finally my mother fell silent and Sophie handed the phone over to me. I put it to my ear, but my mother had already hung up. I was about to say something along the lines of, Well, Sophie, I hope you realize that I don't hate French people. But before I could speak, Sophie said, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I was just so sure that the answers on my exam were right 
that I was looking for a reason for you to not give me full credit. I have also been feeling like an outsider here in the U.S., and I guess I was sensitive to being French. I guess I deserve the C. Now, I would have preferred that she had yelled her apology as loudly as she had yelled her accusations of bigotry, but I was satisfied. I did ask her to please withdraw her formal complaint against me and to explain that I had done no wrong. She did do this, and in fact, the next day, more than one professor teased me about being an anti-French racist. In the end, Sophie pulled her grade up and got such a high score on the class project and the final that she got an A in the course. Here's the truth. In the end, I got a lot of joy out of that very stressful, terrible moment. I have told this story many times. The hard part is having the perspective and the confidence to know that things will indeed work out. The longer it takes for a situation to be corrected, for God to replace pain with happiness, the greater that happiness. Jumping from the beginning to the tail end of James, this is what we read. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. This tells us something very important about turning something horrible into something blessed. It says that we don't have to sit around long, praying to God and waiting in isolation for salvation. It says that we should lean on fellow believers. That's why we belong to a church, why we attend a church. We lift each other up. We ask each other for help. We're not embarrassed. We're not ashamed that somehow something that's not perfect has happened to us. No, not at all. The first step toward finding joy in our lives lies in turning to other members of our faith family. Leaning on fellow believers is a good way to get started on that path to joy. Knowing that God's in your life and walking with you every step of the way. It's also nice when God, every once in a while, brings a Sophie into your life to remind you that you can find joy even in the midst of trouble.